feels like every week there's another tweet or update from the likes of SpaceX or NASA showing a launch or a landing of a rocket straight out of a sci-fi novel. We haven't seen this kind of innovation and investment in space since the Apollo era. I mean, we've got mind-bending ventures ranging from hundreds of super-advanced satellites orbiting the Earth every month to rovers and drones flying around the surface of Mars. This episode, I catch up with renowned professor of astrophysics at Swinburne Uni and get a look inside his lab in Melbourne that is in control of some of the most powerful telescopes on Earth. We discuss the ways the solar system is being unlocked with exponential technology advancements and investment. The fact, as you said, we've got these billionaires funding some pretty extravagant uh, programs. At some level, they've taken a punt that they will recoup these investments. But the actual reason they all quoted was that they want to ensure humanity doesn't think the horizons are limited. When in times gone by, we've, we've as, as, a, as a species, felt that our resources were beginning to be constrained, uh, we turned on each other and we fought and scrabbled for what was left. And what role good old Australia can play in the next generation of space exploration? Right now, we fulfill a supporting role. I think we need to take a lead in some of our own missions. And how the Accelerator program at Swinburne University helped get him where he is today. And applications are now open for you to get your business idea in there. Whatever the concept or life stage, you can be part of it too. You can find all the details at futuresandwich.com. My name is Tommy McCubbin and this is Future Sandwich, episode 26, Space Business. Professor Alan Duffy, welcome to Future Sandwich. Thanks for having me. So we're here at Swinburne in Hawthorne. What goes on in this building? What's your role here? Okay, well, this is the uh, Eric Orman Baker Charitable Fund uh, Remote Observing Facility, a.k.a. the Keck Room. This is where astronomers take direct control of the largest, most powerful optical telescopes in the world. They're sitting on top of uh, a mountain in Hawaii, at Mauna Kea and they peer into the absolute depths of space looking for everything from uh, the most distant galaxies known and recording their their positions and properties to everything including exploding stars and trying to better understand the life cycle of stars galaxies and the origins of planets like our own have these telescopes been used to discover anything interesting lately? Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. So, um, so the Keck telescopes, in combination, indeed, with with thirty seven other telescopes all around the world, all feeding into this room at the same time. The whole place gets filled out pre pre COVID, got filled out with people, um, and they were looking for what are called super luminous supernovae. So these are exploding stars that, for reasons as yet still unknown, are uh, uh, ty- you know. Even where a star explodes and outshines its galaxy, these put those kinds of supernovae to shame. They are hundreds of times brighter. Again, we don't know exactly the origins or the nature. We're, this is a mystery that quite literally we're trying to solve as we speak. So this is just one of the kinds of discoveries that are made when you can pull together telescopes from all around the world. And so what's the theory? Once you sort of uncover some of the secrets of those supernovas, what concepts and hypotheses do you think we'll be able to arrive at after that? So exploding stars are the origin of, of most of those materials that we hold dear. And I mean, that's quite literally like, you know, gold, right? It's formed in the collision of neutron stars, another discovery that was made as part of this facility. Um, so we have those kinds of discoveries, but also we use them as uh, uh, what are called standard candles in other words you have a candle in front of you it's bright you're further away 
it's a little dimmer, obviously. In the same way, these stars, we know how bright they are, and we then uh, intrinsically, and then we see them a little dimmer, we know they're further away. From that, you can actually measure the distances to these galaxies, and indeed, when they're that bright, you can measure the distances across the entire universe. In other words, you are measuring the size and indeed the expansion rate of the universe. From that, you discover what the universe is made of. And it turns out about two thirds of it is a mysterious new form of energy we cannot yet understand. Who knows what that will unlock when we finally do access the great driving energy that, that is fueling the expansion of the universe. And does that keep you up at night or do you feel pretty optimistic about these enormous mysteries? Uh, it keeps me up at night in the excitement of the discovery. I don't worry overly whether it gets discovered today, tomorrow, in my lifetime. In fact, I'm, I'm part of a, another mystery we're trying to solve is, is dark matter, which, make, which makes up five times more of the matter in the universe than every atom we can see put together. This is a huge amount of un, fundamentally unknown new material. Uh, it's in this room right now. It's, it's, it behaves like a ghost, essentially. It flies through us without collision. We have no idea what it is, and the universe doesn't owe me anything to, to you know, make that discovery happen in my lifetime, but it's, it's, it's a joy to be part of a larger team that is trying to discover those kinds of mysteries. It's, uh, yeah, the thing that keeps me up at night is if, if we were to ever stop trying to uncover these mysteries. That's the thing that would worry me more than any, any you know, challenge that it might not arise in my own lifetime. And on that, there have probably never been more resources thrown at exploring and discovering and indeed commercialising space exploration. We had the Apollo era, and then it kind of went a bit quiet, and there wasn't any activity after that enormous spike in the 60s. And then all of a sudden, there's this huge boom. We've got some incredibly wealthy people investing a huge amount in some outrageous concepts. What does it mean to be an astrophysicist in this age when private companies are investing so much? It makes it a very exciting time. It makes it a very uncertain time as well, uh, by which I mean there are huge resources going into uh, you know, re reaching the moon to uh, industrialize low Earth orbit, right? So we're seeing thousands of satellites going up there. Ex you know, from that, we get exquisite data back on, on Earth, imagery of, of the Earth. That's, of course, important for fire and floods and, and the like. It's also uh, causing issues for astronomy because these satellites act essentially reflect sunlight and they and they blind our telescopes they cause us in, in immense difficulties and to see beyond them to the the objects of of interest in deep space so it's a really weird time at the one on the one hand we're seeing this explosion of of public awareness interest and support for new missions to space which is which is exciting and it's great to be a part of and those new technologies um, aid us in the discovery process but on the other hand if we don't do that in a responsible manner, we might very well jeopardize some of the, the fundamental research that we're trying to undertake. Right, and so optically we're just creating a really messy atmosphere. Is that one of the most obvious ones? Yeah, basically. I mean, these things glint and get in the way of your observation. And, and some of these um, observations are quite challenging for, uh, for, for us on, on Earth. I mean, we, we just to put in context, um, you'll see a um, a satellite will, will reflect sunlight back into your telescope. So you'll see something bright and it'll race across the frame and then it's, and, and it, and it's gone. Now, what we are doing in astronomy when, when we look for near-Earth objects, we're looking for something that's reflecting starlight, uh, sorry, sunlight 
wasn't there before, it is now, and then it disappears. So in other words, there's a change. So our automated search algorithms are picking up these satellites. The automated search algorithms are designed to pick up asteroids. And that's a real annoyance because we really want to make sure we find all the near-Earth asteroids. And a lot of these satellites are beginning to blind our automated finding processes, where you're, again, looking for something moving that's reflecting sunlight back to your telescope. And that is a fundamental challenge, and it's only going to become worse. And it's not clear to me yet that we have quite cottoned on as a society to just how problematic this might be in our very urgent search for all of the near-Earth asteroids that could wipe us out. But, you know, that's one, a that's one aspect. I don't want to be too, too um, negative. I'm actually a huge fan of almost every activity that's going on at the moment in space and the activities of um, commercial activities, indeed, that are coming into the space sector. I think that's re-energized the, the entire world's approach. The fact, as you said, we've got these billionaires funding some pretty extravagant uh, programs. At some level, they've taken a punt that they will recoup these investments that they can afford to, so that's exciting that they are trying to do that. And at least for the case of SpaceX, that's been shown to be correct. This is an incredibly uh, innovative approach where the rockets are reused. They land themselves to be reused, and in that sense, you can drive down the cost of each uh, launch. You're not just throwing away the very expensive rocket that you've built after one use like NASA did. That is a fundamental shift in the economics of, of uh, space exploration and indeed um, the transport of satellites and the like up to orbit and is changing the, the, the game. It's not clear yet whether the missions to the moon that Jeff Bezos, one of the other you know, very wealthy uh, individuals leading this effort and his Blue Origin company can do. Let's hope that makes a similar approach for the moon as, as cost effective. We'll, we'll see. I think it's going to be a little bit harder to do, but it's, uh, it's an exciting new endeavor and it's to be commended that we have new entries to the, the space sector. And what do you think the size of the prize is for these guys? Uh, so I guess it's twofold. I mean, Oh my god, I do a horrible name drop here, but anyways, I chatted to Brian Cox about about this. There you go. Yeah, there you go. And um, and he he interviewed them all, and I don't even actually know if this TV show can I even tell this story. Anyways, um, I'm not sure this TV show ever came out. Exclusive here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he interviewed them all. It's Brian Cox, so he literally can, right? Like he sure. can get in them. And he said that the reason they were all doing it, there's an economic reason. I mean, they have to, you know, they. They're wealthy individuals for, for a reason. They understand the co commercial imperative of these things, and there's a, and you know there are uh, valuable resources to be accessed. But the actual reason they all quoted was that they want to ensure humanity doesn't think the horizons are limited. When in times gone by, we've we've as as a as a species felt that our resources were beginning to be constrained. Uh, we turned on each other and we fought and scrabbled for what was left. Um, this, they want to prevent that by saying, look, there's all of the solar system. Let's continue to take our energies outwards rather than redirect for, you know, at the scramble uh, inwards. And we're already beginning to see the early stages of those resource wars uh, and a lot of tension in, in terms of accessing areas. They're trying to do their bit to humanity's gaze upwards and outwards and you know that's a that's a pretty cool reason uh it's also well worth noting that the water on the moon is 
used for both supplying astronauts, but also can be split into hydrogen oxygen. That's literal rocket fuel. So you just refuel on the moon. Uh, and since it takes, by the time you've transported, say, a liter bottle of water from Earth to the moon, um, its value is equivalent to as, as if that thing had just been solid gold here on Earth, right? And wow. it is really expensive to ship stuff to the moon. So if you can use it there, uh, sorry, access it there and use it there, you've saved a fortune. That's the other reason. And getting a rocket off the surface of the Earth is much harder than getting a rocket off the surface of the moon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the moon's gravity is, is a fraction of that of Earth. There's no atmosphere to slow you down. Uh, it's also to refuel the satellites in orbit. So there's um, you know, thousands of these satellites. Some of the, the larger ones are worth 800 million, uh, with Maxar World V4 was, was budgeted about 800 million total. If you can refuel that, if you can extend its life another 10 years of, of a satellite worth a billion dollars, that is an extraordinary saving for these companies. So there is a price to refueling them that is now being uh, quoted commercially. In other words, there's now a marketplace for going to the moon, mining it, and reusing those, those resources in orbit as a refueling aspect. There is an actual dollar value assigned to this stuff. It's not actually public what that dollar value is, but apparently contracts have already been signed. So this is really happening as we speak. Wow. And just like when the explorers looked out at the oceans hundreds of years ago and said, let's go out there into the great unknown. I mean, there were dangers there that they didn't foresee. And as we look out into the vastness of space and attempt to explore it, what are some of the things that we need to combat as humans in this foreign environment to actually safely explore? Yeah, <laughs> there's quite a few. So, so I'm, I'm director of the, the Space Technology and Industry Institute at Swinburne, and we've got a few different programs. By far and away, probably one of the largest is the um, trying to combat lunar dust. The dust on the moon sticks to everything. It's abrasive. It's very likely carcinogenic. Um, it is horrible stuff. And all of our traditional shielding, cleaning processes won't work on the moon. Uh, so we need to develop new types of materials. Uh, and this is in collaboration with the CSRO. We need to develop new um, uh, surfaces, surface coating treatments, and, and even perhaps active dust mitigation. So there's about five PhDs right now working on ways to um, harness the resources of, of the moon and also try to figure out how to limit the dust problem that we'll encounter there. Uh, we also have another, uh, I think, interesting challenge, a dilemma as we explore in space, and that is, uh, this is another PhD as part of the Institute now, now with um, uh, Ernst and & Young and, and, and the SmartSet CRC. This is about, as we put more facilities up there, uh, for various reasons, time lag being one, I mean, it literally takes time for the signal, uh, control signal from Earth to the object and back, which is the finite speed of light, but, but also just for, for efficiency, we're moving everything to an automated approach. In other words, AI-driven systems will, will operate these, uh, you know, small sats and, and other objects up there. The challenge is, how do you know that the other providers out there, their AI systems are going to behave well when they encounter your AI system? How do you know they're not just going to stuff it up and crash into you and take out your very expensive equipment? Worse yet, if you have people involved, how are you going to ensure their safety? How are you going to assure their safety? That is a new PhD project we have called Responsible AI in Space. We are moving to fully automate the 
for very good safety and also health reasons, automate the, the um, low Earth and indeed beyond uh, orbits. How can we ensure that that's going to be done in a responsible manner when these systems are black box? They're very rarely tested, if ever, against each other. We're just, it's just a free for all right now. We've got to start to give some. Rules. Basically, we've yeah. got to put, put a framework in place. And how can, you, how can you assess a common standard, even? I mean, it's, it's an incredibly exciting challenge. But again, it's, as part of the Institute, we, you know, we're bringing in the team from uh, the School of, of Business and Law to, uh, to work on this because, you know, I can't, I don't know that. I mean, I know AI, but I don't know how to do, how to do it in terms of a framework. So I think that that's where we have some exciting opportunities. But yeah, we're doing heaps of projects. And suffice to say, the the challenges we're seeing um, are multiplying in the sense that the more activity up there, the more the risk grows when something goes wrong, the more potential interaction points and the complexity grows, but also so too is the fun of solving those. What's the role of Australia in all this? We know we had the significant role of the dish in South Australia, which was popularized by the film. Are we still playing a similar role or are we actually innovating some of the technology ourselves, whether that be rockets or satellites, etc.? Yeah, hugely. So Australia is one of the uh, three locations in the world for NASA to control its, its deep space missions. This is out at uh, the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex run by the CSRO for NASA. So that's the only place they can still control the Voyager spacecraft. So we take the signals from those, from any other uh, um, space mission, and we are an integrated, trusted part of their network, but also almost every other space agency as well. European Southern, uh, the European Space Agency, sorry, has its, its facilities in New Norcia and WA. The more recent example of JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency, who trusted Australia with the return, uh, uh, so the, the descent, control, landing, and recovery of the piece of the asteroid that they had just um, access as part of the Hayabusa uh, mission. It landed in Australia. It was Australia that, that basically went out and, and secured and recovered this piece, which is, you know, by any estimates, the most valuable, you know, few grams worth of material ever created based on, on the mission cost. So we on the international scene are a trusted partner. I think what we need to do, however, is begin to have greater ambitions and begin to create our own missions. And we are the primary and then we work with others as the secondary. Right now, we fulfill a supporting role. I think we need to take a lead in some of our own missions. Where does that start? Do you think it's a combination of private and public sectors or? I think it is. I think uh, due to the relative fragmented nature of the space sector in Australia, we're gonna see the first national missions be driven by a mix of defense needs and, uh, uh, you know, federal oversight or at least a, some sort of coordinating role by the agency, space agency, and then uh, hopefully we'll build up the capability of our own uh, uh, national industries as a result of that mission such that the next time it's perhaps an entirely commercially driven uh, uh, enterprise. I think it's fair to say though that we really need to take, have defense and, and as the, one of the largest spenders, um, but also the civil space sector work together on the first mission to ensure that as much of the capability that we generate stays here in Australia so we can reuse it for the next mission and build on it. And you have a venture of your own. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so this is, I, I mentioned the, the idea of searching for, for dark matter and uh, that it's a ghost-like particle. And event, you know, um, 
eventually dark matter will collide with something we hope and, and hopefully we will see that signal and that's part of a, an experiment um, called Sabre led by Professor Elisabetta Barberio of which I'm a part. One of the challenges is the experiment is there's lots of other things that collide with it too including cosmic rays, particles from space which would blind us. We have to take this detector deep underground to shield it and even then these particles from space, these muons are still occasionally reaching it. So the team, uh, my, my team here at, at Swinburne, we created a, a new low-cost muon detector, entirely thinking we were going to use this to basically flag when a muon was coming, and then that could you know, veto and, or at least you know, shut down the dark matter experiment, tell it it's about to get blinded, even a kilometer underground. Um, so we developed these muon detectors and then realized that the, what we had done to solve that problem, uh, essentially getting rid of the muons as a, as a, as a, as a nuisance was an inc incredibly effective way to instead use the muons to, um, that had traveled through that rock to scan that rock, essentially taking almost an X-ray-like scan of that underground region. And that this was extremely valuable for the, uh, the construction sector, the mining sector, uh, who r really struggle to have probes that will, will map out an underground region between tens to hundreds of meters in solid rock. So to solve one problem, the classic adage of, you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure, these muons we were just trying to get rid of to help us try to find dark matter better, well, we've now spun out that technology to identify those muons into M-Detect, uh, a, um, a spin out from Swinburne, and that has uh, already just received its first, first round of, of investment to now use those same muons to instead scan for, well, either air gaps opening up underground as a safety risk or to better understand the density structures underground to improve uh, mining operations, mineral exploration, or um, even uh, in the construction sector for the identification of uh, rocks and boulders underground that could pose a challenge to uh, these, these large developments, which, you know, happily digging through clay and then suddenly hit a, a boulder and it's all over for the day. So these are kinds of problems that I could never have foreseen, uh, certainly didn't intend to, to try to address when we were just trying to f build a very cheap but powerful muon detector, but that's, that's the beauty of Swinburne, that you get a chance and, and you're encouraged to try to spin out, to translate technologies to solve real commercial needs today. It's, it, it's just a really empowering place to have that opportunity. And speaking of empowerment, what sort of message would you give to kids who are coming through school and looking at space and all the science that surrounds this industry? It feels like it's been more accessible than ever because there's so much information out there. It is. It is. It definitely is more accessible. There, you know, you can. There are uh, programs like the Open Data Cube. There's Google Earth. You can literally get the very latest satellite imagery and begin to. You know, explore Earth. And in fact, if you go to um, the Zooniverse, you can get a mix of both images of Earth and, and local um, tracked wildlife. You can literally try to track elephants from space if you want. Uh, but there are also the data that look outward as well. So, um, you know, the very latest uh, uh, observational campaigns of distant galaxies and the like, um, you can be a part of real scientific missions underway right now. You don't need to go you don't need to wait until you've done university and then a PhD to get involved. You can today go to the Zooniverse um, online and sign up for any of these projects and get going. The tools are built to make it possible for you to use it. I want that to encourage people. I want people to think and know that they can be a part of the discovery 
process. There's no, no reason to wait. I do want to encourage them to continue to, to work hard and to study, though, because I think it's, it's fair to say that the, the specialization in science is, um, it is required that you spend the time to get the deep core expertise if you want to be a part of advancing the frontier. You can be a part of the discovery process through these tools, but it's even cooler if, if you're that person 10 years from now who's developing the next generation of telescopes or the next generation of analytic tools or AI that drives those insights. You know, don't just stop at, at, um, you know, at, at, at being a, a citizen scientist in that regard of just you know, analyzing a little bit of the data. I hope that just, just instead whets the appetite to go even further and to build a new facility themselves and drive that. And then that's where skills like engineering or data science or even, to be honest, a very underrated in our STEM-focused world, but being able to work in teams and communicate effectively and have high emotional intelligence, those are skills that we don't often hear about in science, but science is, it is absolutely a team-based activity. There's no such thing as the lone genius. You're going to have to work with people, and if you put the time in to communicate effectively, to learn how to communicate better, you're going to have a more productive career in science. You're going to help others be more productive as well and make great discoveries. So don't see the, the choice of science technology versus um, you know, any of the so-called softer skills or arts-based disciplines. You really need to be able to do all of those to get the best science out. So your alumni of the Accelerator program here at Swinburne, what was that experience like? That was unique and I think it's always going to be unique but we did this during COVID so that was crazy but we had uh, so basically staff and and other individuals connected to Swinburne who had formed companies very very early stage were taken through the entire process over the course of, of several months of the founding of a business the growth the structures uh, you know light advice on, on, on tax on you know benefits of incorporation or not, the ability to grow your workforce. And we had people, just the most extraordinary individuals coming in to speak to us. Um, the, you know, what, what are the individuals from Canva, right? Like what, you know, actual unicorns who are coming in and spending their evenings with us. We had um, experts in, as I say, everything from uh, uh, tax accountancy, uh, legal considerations, but then also how do you build a team culture? And we were taken through that process by the, the team um, at the Innovation Precinct. So the accelerator took uh, several of us at different steps and stages of our, of our commercialization process and brought us all to about the same point, which was ready to launch products, to raise funds and actually see ourselves grow. What advice would you give to people who have got their idea and might be on the edge of getting some traction and they're kind of going, do I need an accelerator, do I not? How would you help them make that decision? If you've never done an accelerator before, you absolutely should. The insights you will gain about the decisions you will have to make, as I said, it's, it's, it covered everything in terms of market analysis, customer identification, as I say, the formal structures of your business and the choices you're going to have to make in the short and medium term. You, if you don't go to an accelerator and you're essentially reliant on luck that you're gonna make the right calls, 
because this information is so hard to find. You can't just Google these answers. You need people who've lived experience, have undertaken several startups, at least ideally, to let you know, to share their experience of what went well and what didn't so that you can avoid those mistakes. Professor Helen Duffy, thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Best of luck. If you'd like to explore more details about the Accelerator program at Swinburne University, it's a 12-week program designed to help founders find their product market fit and scale their ventures. All the details and links to apply are at futuresandwich.com. And if you thought this was interesting, you'll love episode four of Future Sandwich, Asteroid Inc., where we talk with Peter Diamandis and Elon Musk about the future of mining asteroids for very, very precious material. I've also got to plug the Tech Files, of course, my show on YouTube, where each week I cover the top five headlines in tech and innovation. You can't miss it. And if you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or jump onto iTunes and rate and subscribe. It helps enormously. My name is Tommy McCubbin. This has been another episode of Future Sandwich. We'll see you again in the not-too-distant future.